Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watch this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. All led to this, episode 69. It's all been about just making it to this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after this, you know, we could be done and all, it would be fine. It's all downhill from here because who cares? Just kidding. But it's a great number. All right. Yeah, we had a busy week again we had six movies on the docket let's get into it why don't you kick us off with the first one we watched this week so we are continuing going to our favorite place metro cinema to see uh, these movies in a series that's guest curated um, called trials of love and this was i believe the third one i think you're right um called le bonheur uh, it's a 1965 drama romance directed and written by Agnes Varda, which is our first film that we have seen by her. So that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. It stars Jean-Claude Drouot as Francois Chevalier, marie Frances Boyer as Emily Savignard, and um, then Jean-Claude Drouot's family plays his family. So Claire Drouot, his real-life wife, plays Therese Chevalier, his on-screen wife, and then his two children, Olivier and Sandrine Drouot, play the children Pierrot and Jesus Chevalier. <laughs> mouthful, you, mouthful. Thank you for taking on the French. I would have absolutely butchered, butchered it. Uh, the synopsis for this is Francois, a young carpenter, lives a happy, uncomplicated life with his wife, Therese, and their two small children. One day he meets Emily, a clerk in the local post office. What did you think of Le Bonheur? Uh, I felt like this was yet another testament reaffirming my love for 60s cinema. Yeah. Just a sucker for it. I tell you. Um, this was just visually stunning. Uh, I thought the use of color 
and composition, uh, the unique editing and cuts and cutaways throughout just made it just a feast for the eyes. Um, story and plot aside, this was just so gorgeous to look at. But then that's the thing is it's definitely one of those ones that you would get so much from on a second or third or subsequent viewing mm, yep. because you would start to see what the purpose of those cuts and those colors and those shots are within the film because this is one of those movies where I was liking it, I enjoyed it, it was great to watch, and then like the last 10 minutes, mm-hmm. I did not see coming. And it just totally floored me. And then I was like, this movie's amazing. Yes. Like it would have been a good movie with a different ending. But with that ending, it made me kind of reevaluate everything I had already seen. And I could see a subsequent viewing being really fruitful. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Because, yeah, I'm just swept up in all the visuals and how beautiful it is. But the thing that, you know, you got me with the visuals... But then, yeah, the thing that really hammered this film home as being incredible was the story that it chooses to tell. And uh, the particular story this movie chooses to tell pinched a nerve for me because it felt all too familiar to things I've experienced in my life, uh, specifically with my dad. (laughs) So, yeah, sitting here talking about this on Father's Day. As the as the synopsis suggests, uh, Francois meets Emilie who is not his wife, uh, and then something ensues with them. Um, It just felt so real, like just such a a real representation of the attitudes people can have when doing things they just want to do in the name of happiness, Mm -hmm. which is what the name of the film translates to, is happiness. Um, And just how Francois is positioned as our protagonist. And then... How even through all the joyous visuals and pacing of the film, it Varda does a great job of making it difficult to separate that of him being this likable guy we've been following this whole time, but then start questioning his actions. Mm-hmm. It's done very well, and and it's real close to home. I found a um, quote that I really liked from someone who. Wikipedia made it sound like I should know who this is, but there was no hyperlink to her, so I couldn't check it out. Oh. And then I didn't Google her name. Uh, but her name's Jenny Sharmaret, and she says this is one of her favorite movies, and she described it as this, quote, like nothing else, a horror movie wrapped up in sunflowers, an exoriating feminist diatribe strummed to the tune of a love ballad. It's one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. Yeah, beautiful, because it is... On the surface, it's this just slow look at family. Yes. And I could see a lot of people being um, bored or frustrated. Mm-hmm. And you have to really kind of just let yourself be swept up in that and just experience it to get to the point, I think, where you can start thinking about what Varda's doing. And this was our first uh, film by her. And now I'm like, add it all to the list, add it all to the watch list. I want to see everything she's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, she seems incredibly thoughtful. We came home because we watched this in the theater, but it is on Criterion Channel. We watched a couple, like one of the clips of her speaking about the film. Mm-hmm. But I have a couple quotes of things she said about the movie that I think show just how thoughtful she is. One of the things she talked about is how quickly she wrote and made the film. So she said, quote, I don't think I've ever worked so quickly. I wrote it in exactly three days. I wrote the film fast and shot it fast, like the vivid brightness of our short-lived summers. Mm. 
which feels like a thematic part of the film too. Yeah. And then she also has said that she was inspired by Impressionism and Impressionist paintings, saying, quote, Impressionist paintings emanate such melancholy, though they depict scenes of everyday happiness. Yeah. So she's using these shots and colors that we associate with happiness, but there's something else going on beneath that. Yeah. It's just you feel that intention. Yeah. I really, really, really liked it. Yeah. I, I really, yeah, I really liked tonally how she approached the whole thing and how she chose to portray her characters. There's this, there's this scene uh, that's just like this one that takes place in a bed and it's an exercise in covering one's boobs, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really, really well done. Yeah. I am just looking forward to falling even further down the Varda rabbit hole and uh, her films not so much so I'd buy like the $300 Varda collection from Criterion Collection. But well, I mean, we would if we had that kind of money, <laughs> yeah. but we don't. But yeah, this was this was great. Uh, I'm, I'm all in on Varda. How did it make you feel? Saddened by the happiness. It's a paradox. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Mesmerizingly frustrated at men. Mm-hmm. Like you, I too have a father who has done some similar things um i don't think i had quite the same conversations you had with your father because i was 12 yeah and you were 28 (laughs) (laughs) um yeah father follies father follies indeed that's what she should have been watching in pearl (laughs) yeah okay my first mystery movie pick of the week and i got two in a row because you did two in a row last week i decided to revisit et the extraterrestrial 1982 adventure family science fiction film directed by Steven Spielberg, of course, and written by Melissa Matheson. It stars Henry Thomas as Elliot, spelled the same way as you, which is a thing of beauty. My namesake. Uh, Drew Barrymore as Gertie, Dee Wallace as the mother Mary, Robert McNaughton as Michael, and Peter Coyote as Keys. (laughs) The synopsis. A troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape from Earth and return to his home planet. What did you think of E.T. the Extraterrestrial on this revisit? This movie has followed me my whole life, for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised, but tell me about it. So this movie, I watched it frequently as a kid, but I would never regard it as like one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Like I I never think of E.T. as being like, oh, slam dunk, five out of five. Incredible. But you think you've seen it a lot? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, it was a VHS that we owned when I was little. So I throw it on quite a bit. Um, Obviously, like I said, it's my namesake. Like it's. uh, But is it like, did your parents name you after this movie? They say no. But, But it's also funny that like, his name's Elliot, spelled the same as me, two L's, two T's. His brother's name is Michael. My middle name is Michael. Um, so subconsciously, perhaps. <laughs> they saw E.T. and they're like, damn. Blip, blip. <laughs> I feel like there are so many people who are named after Elliot from E.T. And a lot of people who have named themselves after pee-pee, uh, after pee-pee, <laughs> after, pee-pee, uh, after this character. Um, well, it's, it's, it's funny because I actually, in my Letterboxd review, I said that um, I credited this movie as spelling Elliot uh, the correct way. But we have a new friend uh, named Elliot who chose the name Elliot from this film, but spelt it with only one T. And it just called me out. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? Well, and I, um, 
I didn't know at the time that I would win the public library lottery and get Elliot Page's memoir so quickly when I put it on hold. Um, one of my friends just told me they're like 287th in line or something like that. And I'm <laughs> like, whoa. Uh, but Elliot Page talks in the memoir about um, loving E.T. as a kid and dressing up as Elliot with like the red hoodie on mm-hmm. one of uh, his first Halloweens after he had publicly come out as trans. Um, and then he has a tattoo that says EP phone home. It's like Elliot oh, Page phone good. home. Um, so whether he doesn't say in the memoir that he like directly named himself or chose the name Elliot after ET, but feels like it's swirled within that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he also spelled it with one T. So I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say either. Um, I like how I spell my name. I hope everybody else likes how they spell their name, but I want my name spelled correctly. <laughs> it's a bit of struggle my whole life. But there's no denying that this film is iconic. Mm-hmm. It has so many iconic things to pull from it. But before, before we start digging into that, I want to ask you, what's your history with this movie? Like, I don't even know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've talked about this a fair amount in our personal life and on the show, but the eighties is like this void of pop culture Mm -hmm. because my oldest sister was born in 84 and my parents really liked movies and music and going to concerts and reading and like reading like contemporary and classic literature. But then in the eighties they started having a family and they just like didn't have time for that. And it wasn't until the nineties when like we were watching things or they were picking things for us to watch that kind of my pop culture knowledge picks up so i i know like 70s and 60s i know 90s and forward but i don't know a lot from the 80s and i just think et was not something we were watching Hmm. i've seen it for sure but something we were watching all the time no we were more of a we were less of a steven spielberg family and more of a tim burton family right like so late 80s as opposed to early 80s it makes me feel good that I can help kind of fill in that gap for you with pop culture stuff because I I've spoken on the show before, like the eighties are when my parents were like teenagers moving into early adult adulthood. Yeah. And they were, so they were just immersed in pop culture and what was going on at the time. So the music, the movies, the books, everything that was coming out around the eighties is the stuff that I absorbed as when I was younger, because it's the stuff my parent, my parents like. So I've, Love the journey you and I have taken in our relationship of me getting to show you some of this stuff that I grew up on that my parents loved. But you also know, and this has come up on the show as well, that my family had no need for E.T. because what alien film were we watching on repeat? Uh, Mac and me. Yeah, we we loved Mac and me. So who cares E.T.? We didn't want phone home. We wanted that like hands above the head. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we wanted explosions of grocery stores, you know, like, um, but I definitely have seen it. I just don't have a lot of memories of when, where, how often. Um, and then as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, some of the stuff is coming back. I wanted to watch it because I saw a thread on Twitter about it. And I guess it's like the 41st anniversary. That seems like a weird one to celebrate. But people were talking about it. And I'm like, well, that's a long fucking time. 41 years uh, so I just wanted to watch it again. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It was cool revisiting it because it's been a while and I feel like I haven't watched it with the lens of which I watch movies now. So I was excited for that. And the first, the, like, first thing right out of the gate I'll say about it is that this movie is magical. 
Yeah. Um, and there's no denying that. Like, that's just the feeling that I got when I was watching it this time. And this film is the first in a long line of films that establish a vibe that is a favorite of mine and of many people. Like you, I said, I said this to you and I was thinking about it more. You don't get Stranger Things. You don't get the Goonies. You don't get Super 8. You don't get movies like Monster House without a movie like this. Mm-hmm. When a bunch of ragtag kids hop on bikes and are out running people on their bikes, my heart does not beat faster it's or louder. In, it's interesting, <laughs> though, because that certainly is a part of the film and it's like an iconic part of the film. But for the most part, it doesn't follow that thing that is in like stand by me and the Goonies and stranger things and all of that of like friends who are out on their bikes doing this. It's about a family. It's about two brothers and their little sister. That was the, one of the biggest takeaways on this time watching it was how this gross little juicy alien. He's so juicy. (laughs) Brought this family closer. Yeah, because they're, So what I read on Twitter and take Twitter with a grain of salt and Peppa (laughs) (laughs) is that Steven Spielberg was interested in writing a more straight, realistic piece about growing up. Mm. Um, But at the time, he was also being kind of courted to make a sequel to Close Encounters. This is better than Close Encounters. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Close Encounters. Maybe we need to revisit it, but I didn't. I, I did not like. I don't want to. Um, like it. But that what ended up happening is the kind of two were molded together, and I think it's really easy to miss that this is about a family that is struggling. Mm-hmm. Like it's really in subtle moments of at the dinner table when their dad is brought up. Um, it's not belabored Mm -hmm. but this is a mother who is struggling and that seems like a father who's fucked off with Mm -hmm. a mistress um and kids who just like are adrift with their changing family structure and it seems like all three kids are not really getting along at the start of the film like there's this little tiny sister who just plays that like naive not really knowing what's going on role and then Elliot, who seems to be like unable to contain his grief. And then Michael, who just wants to like escape it. Yeah. Like he wants to go play football and be with his friends and play D and D and not think about it. And Elliot doesn't know how to not think about it. Well, and I also got the vibe that Michael feels like he needs to kind of step up and be there for his mom. Like there's a couple yes. of sequences yeah. where his mom has, is having a particularly hard moment and he's just like, mom, are you okay? Like yeah. He's checking in on her. And and she seems like she doesn't know what to do, right? Yeah. And that's the impetus for the film. And then this, like you said, this kind of gross, juicy <laughs> alien helps these three siblings care about something together and bond together. And, and eventually their mom becomes a part of that as well. And it kind of unites the family in a way where they... It's not like they're going to be A-OK after this and they won't still have grief about whatever, whatever's going on with their dad, but that they'll they'll be OK and they can do it, the four of them. Um, and that's mm-hmm. actually a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Watching their relationship grow throughout the movie and just see it happen very naturally, like it didn't feel forced. It felt like it was just from situation to situation. It was just moments that that brought them closer together. Yeah, like make your most excellent promise. <laughs> oh God. It's so good. And I love, there's a moment where 
Elliot, you can't hear the audio, but Elliot tells Michael something and then Michael jumps up to celebrate and like smashes his head on the <laughs> roof. That's just like, it's so great to see those two connecting in that way. But the other thing that really heightens the real family dynamic of the film is that there are so many genuine moments that make this feel real. Like this has one of the best lines in film during a dinner scene in this, in this movie. And it comes from Elliot. It's brilliant, but there's just like so many little moments and, and like the mom's response to that line is so genuine. And then there's just this moment between Gert and the mom where they're trying to leave out the house and Gert just like bumps into the mom's butt and doesn't (laughs) know which way to go. Like those feel like they were outtakes, like they they weren't meant to happen, but it just adds to how genuine these people feel. I think what I understand is that's true, but that Steven Spielberg encouraged that, that he like wanted the kids and um, Dee Wallace to kind of go with their instincts and then he'd choose from what happened. Um, The moment where Gert says, does she say, I don't like his shoes? I think so. Or I don't like his feet. I don't like his feet. Um, That was just, Drew Barrymore saying that like it wasn't in character she was just like I don't like his feet (laughs) they kept that in um and I think I read that it was it was because he didn't like what she was seeing was like mechanical Mm. it wasn't what we were seeing right um but it's so great yeah we I think both of us could not stop with how much we loved Gert in this she's just adorable and precocious and 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 I love that the that the boys don't leave her out. Like say in the way that Stranger Things does with his little sister. Mm-hmm. It's like get out of here, Holly. Like yeah, um, she gets to come along for the ride and be a part of it, and and I'm an important part of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when she spends the day with Et, <laughs> such a good that I mean, you can't tell me Mrs. Nesbit didn't come from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is one of my Mrs. Nesbit is one of my favorite bits in any media ever made. Yeah. Well, and I feel like Gert has the moment at the end of the film that this time was the trigger for me. So yeah, we both cried. Real emotional. Um, and, you know, like just to dip into the pee pee poo poo of it all for a second, we've talked on the show how about we are starting to have really complicated feelings about child actors. And Drew Barrymore has been very outspoken about yeah. the difficulties of being the child actor herself. Um, and, you know, I, I've heard on this film, like there was a like Steven Spielberg nurtured a good environment. But like at the end of the day, these are children working a job. Well, I read a nurturing a good environment or not. I, I read in multiple places. So I'm assuming it's true that there was a day on set where Drew Barrymore was quite sick with the flu. And, and I don't know how she made it on set anyway for parents made her do it or whatever, but she was really struggling with her lines and Steven Spielberg yelled at her mm. and was like quite intense. And then she started crying and then he found out she had the flu and he felt incredibly bad, but it's like, you shouldn't be yelling at a kid anyway. She's how old? Like yeah, it, flu or no flu. If she's forgetting her lines, she's a child, not a adult. Well, it's kind of like putting it in terms like after reading Jeanette McCurdy's book of like, Thinking about the fact that Drew Barrymore, do you know how old she was when she made this? No, but I can find out. I mean, for sure, she's like under eight. She was seven. Yeah. So like, think about a seven-year-old and the fact that this seven-year-old has a boss. Yeah. If you think of that in just normal everyday 
ways. Should a seven-year-old have a boss? <laughs> yeah, it's quite complicated. I mean, I uh, there was a lot about that in Sarah Polly's memoir, um, Run Towards the Danger. And then even I just finished up Elliot Page's memoir, and there's a lot of discussion about the difficulty of being a child actor. And in Elliot Page's case, um, his parents weren't really all that involved. Hmm. Um, in Jet McCurdy's case, her mom was overly involved, right? And in both cases, in Sarah Polly's as well, her parents weren't particularly involved, which leads to potential neglect on set. Like you need someone there to advocate for what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and in situations where parents want their kids to be actors for the money, for the prestige, for whatever it is, they might be a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, or when a parent's just like, ah, oh, they're doing what they want and kind of fuck off, then there's no one there to protect them when things are going awry. Yeah. So it's very, very, very tricky. And in Elliot Page's memoir, um, when he made Whip It, Drew Barrymore and him had a lot of conversations about this. And I think that that was probably yeah. a really helpful thing. Because I don't know, I don't know the details, but I feel like just through some of the things that Drew Barrymore said that she had a similar experience as uh, Jeanette McCurdy with mm. with her mom. Gotcha. Um, being somebody that was didn't have the best intentions. Yeah. Um, but I, I just wanted to mention that because I think it's important because we're on this journey of kind of discovering more and more about yeah. this. We're very, we have our eyes open now when we watch a film that has a child actor. And that includes like teenagers, like junior high age people where we're like, hmm. Mm-hmm a tricky thing you know and and i think it's really important that people have everybody's best interest in mind i mean i even think about um after sun and hearing that like frankie corio and paul mescal became so close but it it's something more i imagine to frankie corio if paul mescal all of a sudden stops continuing that like mentorship and and like brother sister connection right mm-hmm. um in a way that i'm sure you know you, you people make a ton of movies they can't become best friends and keep in contact with everybody but I think you have to be particularly mindful of like what it means to a child to make these connections that all of a sudden are done when the movie's done. And it seems like there was a lot of care put into that on the set of After Sun and, and post After Sun and even pre-filming. But yeah. it's wild. Well, it's, and it's like you wonder about shows like Stranger Things where these kids have been making this show for essentially their, all of their teen years. Yeah. And it seems like they all have great and unique little friendships am- am- amongst each other but who's to say like where that could lead them eventually that they were working full-time working actors part of a cultural phenomenon for the biggest chunk of their young life and also the the pressure like for Millie Br- Bobby Brown I'm sure she's been intensely sexualized at a young age I was just reading about Mara Wilson who played like Matilda and the youngest kid in Mrs. Doubtfire that there was some like really awful incidences with her with like men sending like grown men sending inappropriate fan mail to her when she was like a child child. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even looking stranger things at like Noah Schnapp being pressured to come out. Yeah. Like those kinds of things. And that happened with the actor in Heartstopper as well. It's... I think it's just celebrity culture is fucked and we don't like regardless of a person's age, but then there's not enough care given to how even more fucked that is for younger people. Yeah. Like uh, reading Jeanette McCurdy's book, it's just like if you, and in most cases, well, in some cases it's not necessarily the child's choice, but the assumption is that if you enter 
a profession where you are put in the public eye or a public person, that that gives other people carte blanche to know everything there is about mm-hmm. you and they have the right to that. And that's what leads to things like paparazzi and fans uh, being inappropriate. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's a tricky thing that was never... It's kind of it's it's kind of like phones and social media. It was all brought into place without thinking about any of the repercussions. It was just like, look at this cool thing, and then we're working too hard, too late in the game to try to quell any Let's, anything. Not to get super nerdy here, but there's a whole section in Hamlet oh, yeah. where Hamlet critiques having child actors which is actually Shakespeare critiquing like the new trend of having child actors. And it's like, we have these like documented um, looks at like when all of a sudden it became appropriate to have children acting in, in on stage in film, that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, it is complicated on a lighter note. All all of, all of that said, I wanted to mention that, but I wanted to say Drew Barrymore and Henry Thomas are incredible in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe. Have you ever watched Henry Thomas's audition for this? Yeah, it's wild. And I love it at the end. Steven Spielberg's like, okay, kid, you got the part. <laughs> it's very good. Go on with your bad stuff. What are we going to say? Um, one of the funniest things that you've ever said while we, while we were watching a movie is we're watching this and there's a close up of like Elliot walking and you're like, their hardwood floors are scratched shit too. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> When we bought our house last year, the people who lived here before were very hard on it. And one of the things that I've struggled with the most in how we might go about making it look cosmetically more cared for is that they had a dog that scratched our hardwood floors all up. And that's not an easy or cheap thing to fix. But you were like, their hardwood floors are scratched. Yeah. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. (laughs) It's good enough for your ET fam. It's good enough for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a, this is a really magical film. There's some absolutely just iconic lines and iconic imagery. I do think it drags a little bit. Like it's not one yeah. that for me personally, I want to watch every year. Yeah. Like I said, I can't even remember the last time that we watched this, but yeah, it does. It does get a little, a little drippy. I think especially in like the back half when like the government becomes a part of it. Although I will say the character of Keys did scare me as a kid before we see his face. To add to what's iconic about this movie, the last thing is the music. Yeah. the John Williams' score in this film is uh, incredible. I remember some of the music cues just as much as the visual moments that happen in this film. Yeah, it's it's awesome. One more thing I wanted to touch on with this. Do you know that this movie has an infamously hated and worst like worst video game tie-in ever. No. Yeah, so it it's regarded as one of the uh, biggest commercial failures in video game history. Whoa. There's an urban legend around this. So it came out it came out um, for the Atari, and it was just like ET the extraterrestrial the, the video game. So. In what was once deemed, this is from Wikipedia, in what was once deemed as only an urban legend, reports from 1983 stated that as a result of overproduction and returns, unsold cartridges were secretly buried in a landfill in 
Alamo Gordo, New Mexico, and covered with a layer of concrete. What? In April 2014, diggers hired to investigate the claim confirmed that the landfill contained several ET cartridges along with other games. Uh, James Heller, the former Atari manager who was in charge of the burial, was at the ex- excavation and admitted to the Associated Press that 728,000 cartridges of various video games, not just E.T., uh, were buried. Why? <laughs> they just needed to hide their shame? I guess so. Wow. What was so bad about the game? It just, like, if you've if you've ever watched footage of it, and you can totally look it up, it just did not have like a good purpose the gameplay was shit it just was not a well executed game that right. wasn't fun and was overly comp- complex and stupid <laughs> but i thought you might like that cuz you like urban legend stuff well it's not an urban legend anymore it's true yeah love that but thanks for picking this it was fun to revisit it i agree i wouldn't revisit it every year but it is uh, it's a good one it's revisit the magic how did et make you feel Heart swellingly charmed. How'd it make you feel? That kind of special nostalgia unique to summer bicycle adventures. Ooh, yeah. All right, we went in a weird direction next. Um, I picked a movie that, like, I don't even know how it made it onto my watch list, but it did. Once it's on my watch list, I assume I put it on there for a good reason at some point. Um, and I recently got a free trial of movies, so I was like, let's try and watch some of the things on there before I canceled my membership um, <laughs> when my free trial is done. So I picked the 2016 drama, if you can call it that, Anti-Porno. It was directed and written by Sion Sono, and it stars Amy Tomite as Kyoko Suzuki, Fujiko as 100, Sayaki Kotani as Watanabe, and Mariko Susu as Noriko. The synopsis is Kyoko is a novel writer and artist. She shuts herself in a room painted in bright colors. She carries out her schedule minute by minute. I knew nothing about this movie. (laughs) I just was on my watch list and it was on movie and I picked it. What did you think of anti-porno? I'm going to start with what I liked, which is I thought the colors and set decoration were fantastic. Uh, I thought our main character was compelling. What was her name? Kyoko. Kyoko. I thought I thought she was she she drew me in. This had me intrigued at the beginning. It like kind of just drops you into her world and it's it's very odd. It, it feels a little surreal. But then it slowly started losing me with some of its dialogue choices. And then it starts to throw in twists and turns that make it seem like it's uh starts crawling up its own butt a little bit yeah so it's really tricky i think one of the things and i don't even know that you know this so i'm gonna tell you it now and i didn't know this watching it and i think it would have framed our viewing of it a little differently so how this movie came to be is that there was a company in japan um that made quote highbrow soft core porn films and they were called roman pornos so like i think of the things that they're playing on the channel in Videodrome before he finds Videodrome. Right. Like that kind of stuff. And they decided to do this, like the the company that made, that made, I don't know if they still make, these Roman pornos, as they're called, sought out five directors to remake Roman pornos. And this was one of them. Mm. 
And so that was, I think I, I didn't know that about it. So it's a really, it is a really interesting concept to take this idea of this, this Roman porno history in Japan and then critique it through the film. Mm. That actually adds a layer of intrigue and kind of like intentionality behind it. Yeah. But then I kept reading and I found out that the director and writer, Sion Sono, has been accused by multiple women and and multiple like male um, actors, directors that he's worked with of sexually harassing and assaulting women. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, now I just don't like any of this. Yeah. Because I don't think you get to be like, oh, look, I'm making a subversive critique of the porn industry in Japan on request from the porn industry in Japan and then be someone who harms women. Yeah. And particularly he's been um, alleged to harass and abuse his, the the women that work for him and work with him as a way for them to like get parts. I believe women. So when I read that, I'm just like, well, so that, that really, impacted the way I saw the film afterwards because while I was watching it I was kind of like you it started and I was all in I was like whoa this is like so visually stunning um and just like hilarious but then it started to get really icky for me and I don't know if I'm just like a prude or what but like I struggled with some of the content in this making me feel like really uncomfortable but it wasn't just icky like some of it was nasty and I think that's on purpose, like, because it's supposed to be critiquing what people want out of porn. It's kind of like you're saying, like, knowing what we know now after watching it, it kind of paints some of those yeah, in a different light, whether or not that was the intention. it That's what it did for me. Yeah. It's pretty tricky. So, I, yeah, I kept kind of having these extreme feelings while I was watching it and being like, I really like this and being like, I really don't like this. It's making me feel really uncomfortable Feelings about porn are complicated for me. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show, but growing up, my dad owned a porn store. We lived in a pretty small place. Um, I was, I mean, I'm sure the term would be bullied, but I never thought of it in that way. But by kids and even their parents um, Mm -hmm. for the fact that my dad owned this business and just have had nasty things said about me, said about him my entire life, including now after his death. Um, about the fact that he owned this business. And so I think my own feelings towards the porn industry are very complicated by the fact that when I was four years old, my dad opened a porn store and people shamed me for having a dad who owned that business from the time I was four years old. Right. Um, And so then watching something like this, I can't like help but have that complicated history swirling around as I watch it. And then, you know, when it's over and I'm like, oh, that is a really interesting like rethink it with this lens of a critique and then I read about the director being an abuser and I'm like well fuck all of this (laughs) and it's a shame because I was I was swinging back and forth while watching it and there were some things I really didn't like particularly um there's moments of like sexual assault or like simulated sexual assault which also from a critical lens makes sense because people watch stuff that is simulated sexual assault. And I think it's critiquing that. Um, But those moments made me very uncomfortable. Yeah. As perhaps they're supposed to. But I loved the final scene. Yeah. Like, like Le Bonheur, I was like, whoa, this final scene 
is like visually unreal. Mm-hmm. There's some lines in it that I was just cackling at. Mm-hmm. But then I read about the director and I'm like, well, fuck him. Mm-hmm. And then I'm kind of mad I ever watched it. Yeah. It's a hard thing to reckon with when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't come away loving it because some, some parts of it had made me so uncomfortable and I could see for other people why they do really like it. Yeah. Um, like I think it's a bit of a me thing with that and, and my own personal history, but I don't know how you reckon with supporting a director who has had so many allegations against him from so many different people, from so many people within the industry, men and women. I just, I won't be watching another film of his. Yeah. Now that I know. No, I agree. Um, just before we close this out, I just want to circle back to something like I know that you've talked to me before about the difficulty of growing up and your dad owning, owning the porn store and that you took a lot of shit from both kids you grew up with, but also their parents and adults. But, uh, when you told your dad about that, he did the most baller move that I thought was, I still regard as one of the coolest and best things. So why why don't you talk about it? I mean, it's definitely not ethical, but it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, my dad opened his business for better or worse in 1994. (laughs) And I think it did quite well for a while before the internet. Um, and I was four years old and he ran it until I think 2008. Long time. Yeah. There was a certain point where it was not what it said it was, but, um, that's a story for another day. (laughs) So, you know, I think I did a pretty, Emma, my, my therapist might say differently. I was going to say I did a pretty okay job not letting it bother me. But, <laughs> um, you know, as a little, little kid, I have a memory of a girl in elementary school being like, your dad's a sicko who owns the porn store. And I was like, how do you think your parents know? <laughs> Just like <laughs> stuff like that. But then I entered high school and high school is a difficult time where you're kind of reasserting who you are and figuring out what your identity is. And in the first couple of weeks of high school to mean girls who, if they were, you know, on a high school TV show, they'd be cheerleaders for sure. Um, (laughs) We're talking in that way of they wanted me to hear, but they weren't talking to me about like this, the pervert who owns the porn store. And um, I had a, a kind of casual acquaintance who I'd gone to school with since kindergarten who went and told them off. I was like, have you ever met him? He's a great guy. Like, don't talk about people you don't know. Uh, and that was really nice. Mm-hmm. But I was really upset by it because I'm like, I just I don't need this to be my legacy forever. And it's yeah. often why I don't talk about it now. Um, but I called him that night and I was really upset. And he said, like, put on your coat. I'm going to come get you. My parents had long been divorced by this point. Maybe not long, three years. And he took me to the store I never hung out in the porn part of the store. He had a back room with no porn in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he let me go through all of his memberships. <laughs> <laughs> and all of those motherfuckers who were so mean to me, including the parents who would be like, oh, you can't go to to that to that birthday party because her dad owns a porn store. They all had memberships. All of them, like teachers, business owners in the community, my parents' friends, or my friend's parents, like all of them. I think that's so badass and I, I feel like that's such a awesome so specifically your dad thing oh yeah <laughs> to do and what I like as you as you were saying that like I've, I've heard this story so many times before but like what a microcosm for North America and its relation with sex well what you see in that I think is that I as a child 
as a four-year-old. And I mean, this kind of goes back to this conversation we're having about child actors. I'm being burdened with the shame of adults. Yeah. Because they feel shame for their, like the memberships they have, or they're, they're worried that my dad might say that he knows them. And look at that to my dad's goddamn credit from ages four to 15. He said nothing about anybody who ever came into his store. And then I think he got fed up. Mm-hmm. with the way that I was being treated. And he trusted me because the, the thing he said after he let me look through those memberships was don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, don't tell. And I, and I didn't, it wasn't until the store was long gone and he was long gone. And I, you know, I don't name any names mm-hmm. that I started telling this story, but he trusted me to keep that secret and to just kind of have this, this weapon inside of me that like, yeah, when you're when you're saying those things, you actually don't know the whole story. And, and it's your shame to deal with, not mine. Yeah. And it was incredibly helpful. Um, That's fucked up. Don't put your shame on a fucking kid. Yeah, four or 15. Yeah. And my dad never had any shame about it. So. <laughs> yeah. But then, I mean, he's even having to take the shame of other people. He's this, he's the name that, that you associate with this business, but who are all of the people keeping the business going, right? Um, and that shame is seeping down into, into the dynamics that are happening within the community. And it's just such a, such a shame and haven't totally exercised all of the complicated experiences I had being treated the way I was by Mm. kids and adults alike because of what my dad did for a living. But yeah. Yeah. It's, People it, do love that story. My therapist loves that story. She said she sometimes thinks of it and just smiles to herself. Well, it's 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 badass and just like, what a great way to have your daughter's back. Like it's it's this such it's such a weird thing, and like I think you've put it really well. But it's just like these people come to your dad and his store for a service that they want to partake in frequent enough that they have a membership at this store, but yet when they're not there and not appreciating what he's offering, they just have this like projective view of him as like this other kind of person. And it's to protect their own view, right? Of themselves and. And not be associated with that. It's, it's so, yeah, like I was saying, it's just this microcosm of like everything is so sexualized but then everyone's really prudish. There's, there's no, in, there's no fluidity. There's no in between. There's, especially in just like some communities, it can get particularly nasty. Well, the, the best way to end that story would be with saying what the name of his store was because people love it. We've come to learn that your dad was very, very good at naming businesses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So his uh, porn store that he opened in a small conservative town in Canada in 1994 was called Night Rhythms. So fucking good. So good. <laughs> yeah. 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 What a man he was. And then to name his lounge that was attached to the bowling alley. The spare room. The spare room. So good. God damn it. Like, man was a genius. <laughs> and I, now he's just a dead genius. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Dad. <sighs> Happy Father's Day. No, oh, God. Anyway, back to the movie um, and pushing away from my dark dead dad humor. How did anti-porno make you feel? Uh, felt the ick pretty quick after the flick. <laughs> How did it make you feel? 
just uncomfortable. Felt made me feel uncomfortable while watching it, and then even more uncomfortable um, afterwards reading about it. So, I I do know people that really like it, and I think if what we talked about is something of interest to you, but um, it's not one that I would actively recommend or ever watch again. And I will not be supporting the director. You're here. Yeah. Take us somewhere completely different and way more lovely. So we went back to Metro cinema to partake in the fourth film and penultimate penultimate film film of the trials of love uh, series that was being um, shown there. And we saw the 2021 drama St. Anne. It was written and directed by Rain Vermette, and it stars Isabelle uh, DeChambeau as Athene, Jack Tease as Modeste, Valerie Marion as Eleanor, and Dolores Goslin as herself. Uh, there's also uh, Rain Vermette it included a lot of just members of her family and friends that just like came in. This is a very independent film, so had a lot of friends and family that came in to uh, help as well. Did you say Rain Vermette played herself? No, it wasn't listed on IMDb right away. She played Renee. Okay. Like the kind of the one of the central characters. Okay. I'm I de- think honestly the the Wikipedia IMDb letterbox is not great for this film. Um so kind of piecing things together. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that. Synopsis. A woman moves back to her rural home a rural hometown in Manitoba where her brother Modeste has been raising the woman's daughter with his wife. What'd you think of St. Anne? So this was one um, we ended up seeing because we were really enjoying the curation so far for the Trials of Love series that's been guest curated at Metro. We're seeing the last one tonight. We're seeing the last one today. Um, And what they've been doing is like playing trailers for the ones that are upcoming when you go and see one of them. And we saw one for this and I was like, whoa, that looks like Lynchian, strange. Let's just go see it. Let's just go do it. I didn't even know that the director was going to be in attendance, um, which ended up being really cool. In terms of the film itself, I didn't really know anything about it. Mm -mm. I didn't know that it was, I knew that it was prairie based. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that it was um, made by an indigenous woman. Uh, I didn't know there was going to be a Q&A. Didn't know what the plot was. <laughs> Didn't know what we were doing. Sometimes we just go to movies. Um, I found it mesmerizing. Yeah. And gorgeous. Yeah, it is beautiful. And uh, again, it has that uncanny thing about seeing your home on yeah. film. Like, even though this was shot in Manitoba, I mean, prairies be prairies in, in Canada. So Prairies do be prairies. Um, it just, it feels so closely connected to me and where I live. This was something I haven't talked to you about this yet. I actually felt very emotional watching this movie because Manitoba is my dad's home province. I was going to ask you about this. And I've never seen it. Like I've never been there. And he like Manitoba meant a lot to him and he didn't talk about it. But I heard I, I learned through mostly his mother, my grandmother, um, that he never wanted to leave Manitoba. They left when he was either like early or late elementary or like early junior high. Um, He was born in Flin Flon, but they lived most of the time that he was there in Thompson and he had family in Thompson, which is funny because that's her cat's name. Uh, So you don't know why they left? 
I do know why they left. Oh. My, I just don't know the, specifically when it was. Okay. Um, they left because my grandpa was opening a bowling alley in Rocky Mountain House in Alberta. Like he had an opportunity to open a business. Or like he was he opening some kind. I think he owned like hotels and I don't know. He owned lots of things. Um, I think I knew that he opened it in Rocky Mountain. That he had a bowling alley in Rocky Mountain House? I don't think I knew Yeah, that's that. where my parents met. I mean, that makes sense. I guess I just didn't know that he had a bowling alley there. Is there a bowling alley still there? Yeah, he like he sold it when he they moved to Leduc, but Right. Um Yeah, so I I, I learned kind of through my grandmother that my dad loved Manitoba, mm. that it was hard to move here. And a bigger part of the story that's pretty heartbreaking to think about, and I think we've talked about it on the show before, but my dad had a fairly major accident when he was 16 that changed his life. He was working in a mechanics shop and a hubcap blew up in his face. It like structurally destroyed his bones and he had to have like fa- a pretty major facial reconstruction. He lost an eye. Um, he had chronic pain from that point on and and obviously in he was young when this happened. Yes, he was sixteen, so that yeah. would have been nineteen seventy-two, I think. Mm. And there was just no resources to help him deal with the trauma of that. Especially in a place like Rocky Mountain. Exactly, House. in in that time. And a story I do know from him, but then was kind of filled in even more by my by my grandma, is that he was just struggling with not being able to do the things that he could once do. Like he felt like he wouldn't, be, he really liked to drive. He felt like he wouldn't be able to do that again because he was missing an eye. Um, he was a pretty handsome fella and he no longer felt that way about himself. Like a lot of really complicated things and nobody to really talk to about it. Mm-hmm. And he actually ran away back to Manitoba. Oh, he took a train and he went back to Manitoba and I think he was there for a stretch of stretch of time living with an uncle. Um, so like in his, like kind of deepest trauma, that's where he went back. Like that was home. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, you might not have. But knowing all of that and then like seeing Manitoba on screen was actually like incredibly emotional for me. Mm. Like I felt welly yeah. watching it. Cause I'm like this. And because the film is so visual and sensory based, and the story is kind of fluid and, you know, abstract to a degree. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ability to feel your way through the movie. And that kind of, mm. some of the opening shots, they're, they're eerie and they're a little emotionally haunting. And, and that kind of association with like my dad's connection with Manitoba kind of framed my viewing of the movie that's that's interesting even though the movie has nothing to do with anything like who my dad was or or his life yeah but i i think that's great that you're able to make that connection to this story because i mean i mean obviously i wasn't feeling that same way but i was there was emotion being pulled from me in those moments because especially those moments where you know it does get more abstract and starts uh, dealing with more surreal dreamlike sequences, but it's the sequences where uh, rain just decided to focus on landscape or Mm -hmm. focus on what the world of Manitoba and St. Anne look like. Those moments hold emotion for me the way that 
uh, Kelly Reichardt is able to do that with mm-hmm. scenery. Mm-hmm. There's just something so impactful about the the lens of which Rain and Kelly Reichardt are able to look out at a landscape and make you feel the weight of that yeah. world that you're looking at. And there was really like Kelly Reichardt, and I'm thinking specifically of certain women, the sound was a huge part of that. Like shots where you're hearing the breeze or like the rustling of um, nature or, or birds. And mm-hmm. it just kind of, it is, it's, it's just really mesmerizing and like emotionally impactful in a way that you have to make meaning of that. And I felt like this film did a really interesting, beautiful job of kind of showing these moments of like warmth and connection. One of my favorite scenes was like a bunch of women pulling some pranks, <laughs> like <laughs> dressed up and and going house to house. And and then there's also these moments of like isolation and these moments of connection between like two people and tenderness and grief. And it was really beautiful. Yeah. I think that it's really special when a filmmaker is able to make you feel so emotional and so emotionally invested um, to make that emotion so resonant just through tone and visuals and mm-hmm. not necessarily in dialogue or action or actions like the dialogue and the actions and having the actors perform things. That's just kind of the icing on the cake of what you've already established just through stillness. And I mean, in the, in the narrative that exists within this film and it's told in such a like fluid and non-linear or at least like non-traditional way that narrative done in a traditional way could be very saccharine Mm. could be could be very like overly emotional to seek a particular response from the viewer Mm -hmm. Um, like the story of a mother coming back to a daughter that's kind of developed new parental connections and like the complication of all of that, but doing it in the way that Rain Vermette does actually had a lot more impact for me than perhaps a more traditional narrative would. And that was something she spoke about in both before the film started and in the Q and a afterwards was about wanting to like disrupt the structures of film mm-hmm. and disrupt traditional structures, both in terms of hierarchy, um, but also in terms of like how film or film is made and you could feel that in the film. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And this film, like, I feel like this film deserves to be seen by so many more eyes. And it, it's and it's not from a lack of opportunity. Like, it was named Best Canadian Made Film at TIFF mm-hmm. the year that it came out, 2021. Um, it was featured on uh, the Criterion Channel, which is a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's not... Like uh, Rain Vermette kind of spoke in like the Q and A of just the difficulties of the show business machine and the opportunities that find you and the opportunities you have to work tirelessly, tirelessly to seek out. And in this particular scenario, the way that COVID impacted that, yes, because this film came out um, in pandemic, like height of pandemic times, which makes it difficult. I would assume for a smaller film to get the traction it might otherwise get if you could be going places and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like um, if I can totally see, you know, I mean, this did play at Metro, but I can see if this was 
this came around at kind of the height of its release and that we weren't in the middle of a heavy pandemic year, this would have totally come to Metro and maybe garnered a larger audience or a little bit more buzz. And Well, that's actually what, um, so the Q&A was run by Heather, who is the programmer, like the head of programming at Metro. And she said that. She said, this is the type of film that we would have brought to Metro when it came out, but but Metro was shut down. Yeah. <laughs> like, so we couldn't. Um, also, just quick shout out to Heather, who's friggin' doing the Lord's work as the programmer at Metro, because it, uh, the programming at Metro has been incredible. I, I mean, it encouraged us to buy the Metro passes, and we've used it to the moon and back. Yeah, at if we this didn't point. live a half hour drive away from the theater, we would just be there all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, just shout out to Heather and the team at Metro Cinema. And I think the the guest curation is particularly wonderful because, as was spoken about by Heather when she said, this is a film that would have come and then it didn't and then it, you know, kind of passes by and that she was really excited to have it be suggested for this Trials of Love series and to be able to bring it in and bring uh, Rain Vermette, like, here to talk about it as well. And I'm really appreciative of that, too. Big time. Yeah, this was this was really special. I'm so grateful that we got to see it in the theater, and I thought it was uh, an excellent uh, addition to the Trials of Love series. I'm glad, and I'm I'm very happy and grateful that Metro was able to bring this to our city. How did make you feel? Made me feel swept up in the fluid beauty. That's really nice. Really well put. How did it make you feel? Made me feel moved and inspired. Okay. I wanted to revisit something that we've only seen once, to my knowledge. Yes? Yep. Yes. So I picked the 2018 biography comedy drama, The Favorite. It was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. And it stars Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne, Emma Stone as Abigail, Rachel Weisz as Lady Sarah, and Nicholas Holt as Harley. Synopsis is, in early 18th century England, the status quo at the court is upset when a, new, when a new servant arrives and endears herself to a frail Queen Anne. Um, first off, I appreciate the spelling of the title. <laughs> As I mean, it is about like a British queen, so I feel like it'd be a little bit, it'd be problematic to not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as a Canadian... Big episode on spelling this this week, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Um, I was very much looking. I'm I'm starting to get very excited for the new Yorgos Lanthimos film, Poor Things, which has Emma Stone in it as well. Um, so I was just with that in my mind. I'm like, I want to revisit the favorite because we've only seen it once, and I, I kind of want to see it again. So, what do you think of the favorite? So I am not particularly drawn to period piece films. Me neither. Of any period. Yeah. Right? Like if it's not like 1950s or more contemporary, I tend to be uninterested. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are a few things that can change that. If it's weird, mm -hmm. if it's gay, mm -hmm. so Portrait of a Lady on Fire would be a great example. If it's kind of playing with contemporary ideas like Catherine called Birdie, if it's horror, like The Witch, those can kind of supersede the fact that I don't love period pieces. Or, yeah, and just to and I have an example for weird, uh, I'll throw The Green Knight out there. Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Um, but if it's just like a straight period piece, like The Last Duel, which is one of my least favorite movies I've ever seen in my life. Christ. Um, or even like I, I honestly didn't really like Game of Thrones all that much. It was a bit of a slog to watch it, it every week. It was fun to be a part of the zeitgeist. I'm glad to put it aside. Yeah, I won't ever rewatch it. So this one, I remember when it came out, I think we had only seen The Lobster. I think you're right. But we knew what we were getting into. Like, because we'd seen The Lost Lobster, we knew it was going to be weird. Yeah. I believe we saw it with our friends, Sanford and Alex. I think we did too. And this this was a long time ago, like pre-pandemic. Um, and as soon as we got into the theater and we saw, like, all of the old people... I was like, oh, these guys don't know what they're getting into. Not to be ageist, but I think 90% of the older folks in the theater didn't understand that this wasn't like the crown or the king's speech or whatever, whatever. I loved that. <laughs> I thought by the end of the film, I loved that whole thing. Because we've gone to so many of those movies where it's like, oh, this is like the easy Oscar Beatty period piece movie that all the old folks are going to just eat up. And this is so not that. And I'm, I was here for it. It was, it was a strange experience for sure. <laughs> um, my sister also took my mom to it and, uh, and she, my mom was so unhappy about it. She took my mom and my mom's like best friend. They did not like it. <laughs> um, Palanthamos is just so weird. Yeah. This film I think is his most accessible. Yes. Like it's, of, of his films that I've seen, Dogtooth is for sure the most weird. Yes. And I think Killing of a Sacred Deer is more disturbing than The Lobster. lobster. The Lobster and The Favorite lean funny with moments of like distress and, and disturbingness, whereas Dogtooth and Killing of a Sacred Deer kind of make you feel icky from start to finish. I feel like The Favorite's just really straight. And I don't mean that in... Because it's not. It's pretty gay. It's pretty gay. <laughs> but in terms of storytelling, it is like pretty straight. Like yeah. there, there's not like this weird hook of you need to do this by X date or you'll turn into an animal. <laughs> <laughs> or like you need to kill one of your children. <laughs> yes. Or you can't leave your, the house until your dog tooth falls out. Yeah. Jesus. That's true. All of that is true. Like, but this was also the first film he made that he didn't write. Oh, I didn't. I, okay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. he didn't write. He, he hasn't written poor things. So poor things is written by one of the writers of this film. Um, so that's interesting. And I think it got a lot, the favorite got a lot more critical reception. Is this what Olivia Coleman won an Oscar for? It defi she definitely might have. Let's see. Yes, she won Best Actress in a Lead Role for this movie. That's fucking crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's quite quite the thing. It was so it was the film was nominated for actress in a leading role, which she won for. And then they didn't win anything else, but they were nominated for original screenplay, actress in a supporting role for Emma Stone, actress in a supporting role for Rachel Wise, film editing, directing, costume design, cinematography, production design, and best picture. That's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, he certainly hadn't been nominated for that kind of stuff for his other films. So no. that's all really interesting. And I really liked it. And yet it's my least favorite of his movies that I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Like because of how accessible this is it's like I, I was happy to throw it on and it's like it is kind of a an easier watch but when I think of Yorgos Lanthimos I want a tougher watch yes like I want something that's gonna take my brain and just like squeeze it like a little bit <laughs> <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> um 
yeah, I just, I, I really, I, I quite like his films for better or worse. Uh, I find them super intriguing. But just to the point of um, Olivia Coleman winning an Oscar for this, everyone in this film is incredible. Oh, yeah. This is, I do feel like this deserved all the nominations that it got. Absolutely. Like any time, any scene that any of our main people are on screen is compelling as hell. Yeah. Everyone is so good. I, I was particularly taken with Olivia Coleman on this, on this view. Like Yorgos Lanthimos is just really good with making stuff just feel icky and gross and upsetting he has such a command of you feeling that way. And then in the next second, you're laughing. Yeah. Or at least I am. And I feel like the conduit for all of that was Olivia Coleman in this movie. Oh my goodness. She is phenomenal in this. And I think I said to you while we were watching it, that when we saw this in 2018, I hadn't seen her in anything else. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. She's gross. Like it's a friggin' gout. Like, come on. <laughs> her legs stop with the legs. And there's, there's this scene where she's eating cake. Oh my goodness. Um, but since then we've seen her in a lot of stuff and we really like her. Yeah. Like she's, she is a phenomenal actor. Like it's just, I'm all in on her. So getting to revisit the film, knowing kind of that she has this range and she's done a lot more serious. Well, not that this isn't serious, but a lot more. Rounded. Yeah. Not that dark humor, um, kind of thing. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> She's great in this. It's hilarious and upsetting and smart. And as I've already said, still my least favorite of his movies. And I really like it. I just really like some of his other movies even more. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm kind of itching to revisit uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah, me too. It's so disturbing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like all the th- all the other things, I mean, like set pieces are insane. Like a de- that was a detail I didn't take in as much on my first watch, but like watching this at home, um, just looking at the sets. It's amazing. Another thing I wanted to say that Yorgos is really good with is making an ending that sticks with you. Tell me about it. He's very, very good at that. And this film for being as straight as I've mentioned has an ending that makes, that leaves you kind of scratching your head a little bit. And I think both times now we've watched it, we've looked up meanings behind what the ending could be. Mm -hmm. And the ending is upsetting. And it's heavy and it makes you feel uncomfortable in a way that the majority of the rest of the film didn't. At least that's how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with the character of Anne. Like we kind of see a side of her we hadn't fully seen yet. Because I think that you're so much of this film is is just quite funny. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's fun to take the piss out of the elite, yeah, which this film does. But it takes a turn at the end. There's a scene in it that makes me hate a character. Yeah. Not unlike a scene that we talked about when we saw the film Sick of Myself. Where I'm just mm. like, fuck you. I'm done with you. Yeah. There's nothing you can do to redeem yourself. Or in the innocence. Yeah. Oof. Animal stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just can't. Um, and that ending, when you stop and you think about it, has you kind of revisit the rest of the film to think about what the film is saying about power. Yeah. And not just taking the piss out of the elite and the rich and the royals, but actually making you question what we find humorous and what we like about the spectacle of that when there's actually an inherent 
real danger and abusive power going on within these structures. Mm -hmm. It's quite smart. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, yeah, it's really well crafted. It's a, it's a good movie. It's just, yeah, not one of my favorites of his or favorites of all time. Ironic because it's called the favorite. Yeah. I do have a great piece of trivia though. And this has to be on purpose. This has to be on purpose. So mm-hmm. this is a quote, quote, I'm quoting IMDb trivia. The only time may, male characters have a conversation without women present that isn't about women is when Harley and Godolphin talk about the duck. Thus, barely passing the reverse Bechdel test. (laughs) That has to be on purpose. Totally. That like we're going to make a film that's all women. And when men talk, it's about women. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. That's really good. Um, The last thing I want to say about this movie is that as somebody who is a graphic designer by trade, I am uh, a big fan of typography and uh, I love finding new fonts that just make my little monkey brain very happy. This movie, its typography is insane. Once you get to the end credits, the choice they decided to make with the type <laughs> layout is nuts. <laughs> you can't read anything. Everything is so spaced out and unreadable and illegible. But on the other, on one hand, I love it. I do think now that you're saying this, and it isn't about the um, the type, but with the exception of ET. Every single film we saw this week had like a just phenomenal ending that kind of leaves your jaw agog. Like even in St. Anne, it's this really quiet, beautiful last scene that I that I, I really loved. Um, you say except for E.T.? What's the last scene of E.T.? Yeah, but it's pretty, it's pretty, sorry, Elliot just did like a, a hand <laughs> motion so that I would know. I think the E.T. scene is is fairly straightforward where I mean the rest of these films have like some kind of unexpected final scenes. Yeah. Like arty final scenes that have you rethinking the rest of the film or or that add thematically in a more abstract way to the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, So with the exception of E.T., that's what I'm saying. But overall endings that have an emotional effect. Yes. Because we did cry at the end of E.T., Yes. So, yeah. Solid week of endings. Yes. For everything we watch. And I, that is one of the most important things to me in a film is, is how it ends the final scene. What it leaves you with. Whew. Yeah. 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 It was great. It was great to revisit this. Uh, and it definitely scratched the itch that I was having to watch something made by Yorgos starring Emma Stone in preparation for poor things. how did it make you feel? Gobsmacked by the portrayals of power. Mm-hmm. You? Made me feel sleazy, queasy, beautiful. Cover girl. (laughs) Okay. Last film of the week. This was admittedly, we were having a bit of a struggle bus night of, we weren't sure if we wanted to watch a movie and it was getting kind of late. And if you saw our Instagram story, we were going to go see, we were having like, we planned a really nice little date night when we were, we were going to go try this new restaurant that just opened near us. And then we were going to go um, see uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for the second time. So we were both really excited to have a cute little date night and rewatch a movie we both really loved. We got to the theater. It was a Cineplex. And the theater was sold out. But it was sold out with a lot of young people that wanted to just chirp the movie the whole time. Mm-hmm. We had this really, and kind of getting into tangent territory here, but we had this conversation 
when we were coming home from it last night about how we've talked on the show about how movie theater etiquette is just starting to shit the bed big time and become non-existent. But there was always this sort of decorum of as soon as the lights dimmed for the trailers to start in a Cineplex theater, that was kind of the cue for the audience to start chilling out and quieting down and getting into I'm about to watch a movie mode. But I think that with the pandemic happening and with the dawning of all seats are now reserved and Cineplex packing in half an hour of trailers and commercials before the movie starts, people are now showing up to films as close to that, like the start time. So half an hour in. So the lights have already dimmed and the movie is literally about to start and people are walking in trying to find their seats in the dark. Because of this, because people are coming in at a time where we're we're typically supposed to settle, the settling never happens. So the energy in the room is high until the very second that the movie is starting. And then it's during the movie that people start to ideally start to settle. This was a crowd that wasn't going to settle. No, and we knew it right away. Like there was two people directly behind us who I think had to have been like grade five, grade six, and maybe grade seven. And they were shouting like, I know him from Fortnite, like shouting that at the screen. And I'm like, oh, that's going to happen the whole movie. Um, and just in general, what I've been saying to people who are like, oh, what happened? I'm like, it sounded like you were in a dining hall, like that there was just like a constant din of people talking. Yeah. And I'm like, and that wasn't going to end. It's not like it was one or two people that we could say, hey, would you mind being quiet? It was largely the whole theater. How do you go around to a restaurant and tell everybody at every table? Can you talk a little bit quieter? Can you keep it down? It's kind of loud in here. (laughs) So while we've kind of made an active decision to speak out when people are being disrespectful in a theater, when it's the entire theater, I think it's a battle you're not going to win. And so before even we were five minutes into the movie, we were like, yeah, let's let's take off. Like we've seen the movie before. We were really excited to see it tonight, but let's just go get our money back, Um, which we did kind of that's the beside the thing. point yeah um metro cinema for life cineplex sucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's real hard it's just become it's become kind of a a bit of a glorified daycare a little bit <laughs> <laughs> where people just drop their kids off to be obnoxious at the movies while they're teens and and late elementary so yeah, yeah we were kind of me in particular i was just like i'm bummed i'm sad i i I hate humanity. Why can't people just be respectful and like have collective experiences? This sucks. Um, So we were like, let's watch something short because I've been wallowing for a couple hours now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I think I suggested this. Yeah. So it wasn't a mystery pick, but I was just like, what if we watched this? And you said, okay. And so we did. Yeah. So we watched uh, Tetsuo, the Iron Man, a 1989 horror film. It was directed and written by Shinya Tsukamoto. And it stars Tomorrow Taguchi as man, <laughs> Kei Fujiwara as woman, uh, Nobu Kaneoke, Kaneoka as woman in glasses. Nice. Uh, Shinya Sukamoto as metal fetishist, Naomasa Musaka as doctor, and Renji Ishibashi as tramp. A businessman accidentally kills the metal, fesh, <laughs> metal fetishist who gets his revenge by slowly turning the man into a grotesque hybrid of flesh and rusty metal. So sick. So metal. <laughs> What'd you think? Um, so it was wild. 
It was so wild. I want to start with the fact that this is how it's described on Wikipedia. It's described as a tokusatsu cyberpunk body horror film, which already encompasses the fact that this is such a manic film. Um, Very manic. Tokusatsu means like live action with a lot of special effects. Um, it's like a, it's a Japanese term mm. uh, that uses heavy use of practical special effects specifically, which, oh boy, yes, lots of practical special effects. This is gross. Yeah. Like it is when it talks about a grotesque hybrid of flesh and rusty metal. Indeed. Yeah. That captures it very well. I want to admit that this has been a movie I've been nervous to watch forever. Nervous Why? I just I've seen it on so many lists of like movies that are fucked up or movies that'll mess you up or gross movies. And I've just been nervous that it's just going to be really upsetting because I've seen it. I've seen it on shelves and on these lists like for a for a long time, like since early adulthood of when I wanted to start watching more and more fucked up shit um, but I've been nervous to watch this one because I've just heard so many things about it. But yeah, it actually slapped. It had more of a Evil Dead meets David Lynch sensibility than it did like a terrifier cannibal holocaust type thing. Yeah. Right? Where it was, it is gross <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But it also has a sense of humor about itself. And there seems to be this, it has that feeling of, a group of people that just really wanted to make a movie mm-hmm. and they were going to make a movie no matter what. And they did. And you can just like feel the love in it. And it doesn't feel like it's trying to shock mm-hmm. to me at least. Um, and there are some things in it that are shocking, but it didn't feel like it was just to be like, haha, middle fingers to the viewer. It felt like we were all on the ride together. Yeah. It was less middle fingers and more devil horns. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like we're yeah, we're all in on this together, like punk as fuck, metal as <laughs> fuck. Like I found this simultaneously so gross, so funny, so badass, and so arty. Like it's an arty movie. Yeah. Like it's playing in that like David Lynch territory. Like I for a second I was like, is this the sixties? But no, it's the late eighties. So it's post Evil Dead. Post David Lynch, like David Lynch is already making films at this point. So it's mm-hmm. probably playing within that sandbox that some of these other filmmakers are already playing in. But honestly, it felt like it could have been in the Bergman sandbox. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like I've, I've written down so many like it's Lynchian, it's like Bergmanian, Cronenbergian, yep. Possession-ian. <laughs> Possession-ian. <laughs> And I think Cronenberg is already making movies at this point too. So yeah. rather than, you know, as I was watching it, I actually didn't know what year it was made. And I was like, oh, were all of those films inspired by this? No, probably the other way around. But I like how you put it. Like it's in the same sandbox. As yeah. Like films. they're all kind of playing around this time with some similar ideas and methods and. Whoa, boy. I just like a thought that entered my head. Um. And I looked it up after the fact and it totally isn't, but I can totally see this being Trent Reznor's favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) So many people on my letterbox that I follow echoed what you said, which is like, there's a, there's a sequence. It's the title sequence, but there's, there's quite a bit, there's like a prologue before the title sequence. And so many people are like that title sequence is so metal. It's like a music video. Yeah. It's (laughs) It's so so fucking, it rips. It's so good. 
and a lot of people just praising the music like it's wow it, honestly it was just like a roller coaster that if you were like a horror fan it also felt like it was playing in the same sandbox as like uh japanese kaiju movies yeah um so like a real like homage and like love letter to that but like kind of bringing it into this like 80s exploration of like body and gender and sexuality and sex and culture and social contract like that all seems to be kind of a part of this um all in just a little over an hour (laughs) it's wild it is packed like this is it's like eating a really sweet cake where at the end you're like that was really good but like maybe i ate it too fast they throw up (laughs) <laughs> you throw up, yeah. <laughs> and then you start eating it again. Yeah, a la the favorite. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Like I, I echo what you said. Like it just felt like it was made by a bunch of people that were excited to make it. Like the effects were incredible. The story is very straight, but it's fucked up. Um, some cool stop motion stuff in it. Yeah, great, great simple camera techniques that. I don't know, for me, didn't read as cheesy, read as... No, I loved it. Like, I I feel, and like, that's the, that's the Lynchian stuff. Like, I feel like David Lynch, he employs, uh, like, CGI and kind of what can be perceived as kind of hammy or campy camera work. But if you're totally immersed in the, in the story, you don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. You're all in for it. That's how I felt here. Yeah, it is. It was fun. I just enjoyed it so much and I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into and it totally turned my mood around. So, so good. Thank you. Setsuo. Yeah. Uh, how to make you feel manic joy. Yeah. How did it make you feel delightfully icked while rocking the devil horns on each of my hands? (laughs) (laughs) Wordy, but all right. Okay. Uh, those are the smackaroonies. Let's name the dads of the week. Who's your bad dad nominee? I have nominated Queen Anne for bad dad of the week. There was a few choices this week and I was very close to picking Queen Anne, but I did not land there. Why Queen Anne? So I think for much of the film, I wouldn't pick her, but by the end of the film, you know, I, I reevaluate her as someone, and this you see throughout the film, whiny and petulant. Um, relies on others to do her job, which is like the most important job for the country. She's baby. She's baby. But we see by the end that she is someone who uses and abuses her own power. And it's actually been there the whole time that she does this. Yes. And so that her as the head of the country has actually created a structure where people must do the same. If she does it, then everybody else must do it too. Because if that's the way the country is being run by the head of the country, where you have power and you use it to get what you want, then everyone else will have to do the same. Mm-hmm. because there's no other way. And if we look at that as a representation of parenting, pretty messed up. Pretty messed up indeed. I chose Francois from yeah, La Bonne. Thought you would. Yeah, I know it's <laughs> I know it's low-hanging fruit, but uh yeah, just the the relativity of him and his actions to my dad and his actions. But like homeboy doesn't get to be so casual about everything. He's so well, he does <laughs> flippantly casual about everything and his actions in this movie and his pursuit of happiness. Um, and like happiness shouldn't supersede everything else in somebody else's life. Like sometimes you have to do the things you don't want to do or aren't happy about. 
and make sacrifices. It's not just about your happiness forever for all time. And he, and he communicates his feelings far too late or at all. And flippantly. Uh, and yeah, I, I feel like he's just an also just unfortunately a pretty accurate description of not just my dad, but many dads and the things that they can tend to when it comes to their own happiness. I'm just like, isn't my happiness important in all of this? So is it important to you that Francois be the bad dad? Um, Queen Anne's pretty bad too. Do we do co-bad dads? We have to decide. Maybe I don't want my pettiness to get the better of me and we go with Queen Anne. All right. <laughs> All right. Queen Anne. Don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. And Francois, don't be our dad either. Yeah. Pee pee poo poo. Rad dad. I picked Elliot. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, I, I like with Elliot his willingness to help others despite himself. Um, and, you know, I think that that selflessness goes a long way and him kind of learning along the way as well. Uh, he seeks to do the right thing and fights to do the right thing. I think he's a great leader. Like he's great at rallying people to get behind him and support the same good cause. Caring, he's loving, he's passionate. He's also great at roasting his family. Um, which like, that's a great dad quality. Sometimes you just gotta like, just gotta poke, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right uh who'd you pick i picked et <laughs> that's a juicy dad <laughs> he is but okay the reason i picked et is like he's the one who leads elliot to all of those things like i agree with you about everything you said about elliot but it's through et that he gets there like without et i don't think he becomes that person so he is there for elliot when elliot's dad is not like he kind of becomes a stand-in for Elliot's dad to the family. Um, he teaches Elliot about empathy. Like through ET, he comes to understand how like your actions impact another person and thinking about and feeling what another creature or person feels. ET brings the family together when they are starting to drift apart and they are struggling. Like he does what a dad should do. And he's juicy. Here's, here's a question. And he can like build stuff. Is, does E.T. do these things intentionally or is it just through E.T. just kind of wandering through the world that Elliot is able to take those things away from E.T.'s actions? I don't know. They're like connected through an empathy connection. So he has both of them. <laughs> so do you think it's not just one of them, but it's both of them that make one rad dad? <laughs> I don't know. Like you, <laughs> they need to piggyback off of each other. I have no idea. I mean, you need Elliot biking, but you need ET to make you fly. You know, maybe it's just both of them. You can co-dad when they're in the same movie. Yeah. Okay. So Elliot and ET be, be our, our dads. dads. <laughs> and I have a bonus daddy, ET. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I have a juicy daddy. I have a juicy daddy. <laughs> Uh, that was a joke. Oh man, he is. I have a daddy. It's uh the metal fetishist from Tetsu. <laughs> oh man, ET is so ooey gooey. He is heavens. <laughs> but then he dries out. And it's like, ah. oh man. Uh, okay, Rider Rack, hit us with it. 
okay, so we started watching the UK show Taskmaster because one of my all-time crushes who, you know, I would happily take a date with if they're ever interested. James Acaster. Do you have a crush on James Acaster? No, no I, don't, I don't have a <laughs> crush on James Acaster. I do really like him, though. Uh, May Martin. May Martin is uh, in, in the top tier of crushes for me. Um was on Taskmaster. And our friend Sanford has talked about Taskmaster before. So putting those two things together, somebody who I trust their taste in TV shows, plus my crush, put it together, watch it. So we watched that season of Taskmaster. I started watching it on my own, thinking like, oh, I'll just watch Mae Martin. And Swoon. Yes, feel my feelings, and then that'll be done. But I watched the first episode, and I was like, Elliot would love this. So we started watching it together. Then we, after we finished that and we loved that season or series as they call it in the UK, um, you decided we should watch the James Acaster series, which is series seven, May Martins, which is the newest is series 15. And we finished that <laughs> like two days. Yeah. We loved it so much. And so now we're going back and just watching them all. Um, and all of them except the newest series are on YouTube. Yeah. We'll throw a link in the show notes to the Taskmaster YouTube because yeah, they have the full, they have them all there, which is awesome. Series. And we're just going to make our way through. Um, our friend Sanford has said that the Australia season is phenomenal. So I think we'll watch all of the UK and then watch the Australian. Um, highly recommend if you like silliness, but like with a, with like a kind heart behind it at the end of the day even when they're rousing each other it just feels like a ragtag family that's like just all roasting each other but that there's love in it at the end of the day yeah and if you want to hear somebody say little alex horn every <laughs> single episode you you are in for a treat yeah we've buried the lead about what the show is about but i think i think with good reason you should just you just go check, go it, check out. it out if you like british humor you'll love it yeah if uh like we were big on bake off and I have said a few times now, I think I like Taskmaster better than Bake Off. But we still really like Bake Off. It's kind of like how we do really like The Favorite. We just like other ones more. Yeah. If you go to Bake Off for just like easy peasy feeling good vibes, that's great. That's what Bake Off's good for. Taskmaster is like, if you want to have a laugh every episode, watch Taskmaster. That's the Rad Rack. That's the Rad Rack. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you would share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. So that's going to do it for these two favorites with the U for this week. Uh, so until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Bye.